Hi, I'm Mike Dilk and you're listening to the Relax Back UK show. The show that explores all kinds of health topics relevant to you, your family and your friends. Each week I talk to expert guests from a range of backgrounds to inform and entertain you. So please do join the Relax Back UK family and stay tuned. Hi and thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on this week's Relax Back UK show. Now COVID-19 is still with us but the effects are, are much less now. My guest is one of the people who really did work tirelessly throughout the peak of the pandemic to help overcome it. He's Professor Nick Lemoyne, CBE. And in March 2020, he was appointed Chair of the Urgent Public Health Group. The, the purpose of that was to, um, to identify, fund and deliver the key studies that would um, develop diagnostics, therapeutics and vaccines for the uh, the virus, which was a real challenge because at that time we really knew almost nothing about it. It is easy to forget how unknown it all was, just how lost and worried many of us felt, and what a scary time it was. It was a very it was like being in a war room, frankly. Um, and the reason we met in the evenings was because all of our specialists were involved in frontline care for patients with COVID. However, we did get through the worst. Discoveries were made, vaccines trialled and existing drugs repurposed to treat the disease. It saved, in that first year alone, 22,000 lives in, in the UK and a million worldwide. Please do stay tuned to hear more of the story and the very large part that Professor Nick Lemoyne played in all of this. Thank you. On the show, I often talk to people who have achieved great things, helped people, added to the body of scientific and medical knowledge. In short, people that are real doers. Professor Nick Lemoyne is absolutely no exception to this. Um, my first question to him was, what has he been doing since the start of the COVID pandemic? Uh, my day job is um, as director of the Barts Cancer Institute uh, at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, uh, so I'm a cancer specialist, but um, I'm also uh, the part-time medical director for the National Institute for Health and Care Research Clinical Research Network, which is an organization that supports uh, typically about 5,000 studies uh, of, of uh, clinical trials and other research studies across England. Um, but in that role, um, I was asked uh, at the beginning of the pandemic by Sir Chris Whitty, uh, the Chief Medical Officer for um, the UK, to head up the urgent public health research response to COVID-19. And I took up that role in, in March 2020, which seems a long time ago now. I'm sure it does for everybody. Yeah, a lot um, has happened since then, hasn't it? Yeah. It has indeed, and uh, the the purpose of that was to um, to identify, fund, and deliver the key studies that would um, develop diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines for the uh, the virus, which was a real challenge because at that time we really knew almost nothing about it. As I mentioned, um, typically uh, the clinical research network supported by the National Institute for Health and Care Research, which I'll call NIHR from now on, if that's all right with you, Mike. Yes, good plan. Out of the way. Uh, we, so we typically support about 5,000 studies um, uh, in routine practice. 
But um, the instruction from government was to focus entirely on COVID-related studies until we had overcome the disease and come out of the pandemic emergency. So we established um, a group, uh, the Urgent Public Health Group, which consists consisted of um, uh, over 70 individuals. So uh, uh, clinical specialists in um, respiratory diseases, intensive care, um, uh, care of the uh, elderly, um, musculoskeletal diseases, a, a range of different specialists. And we had to call on a variety of them during the pandemic, as well as um, the uh, the leaders of the, uh, what's called UXA, the, was called, it was called Public Health England then, it's now being called the UK Health Security Agency, um, uh, the NHS uh, organisations, as well as representatives from the devolved administrations and um, patient representatives, which was really important for us to have a grounding in what were the questions that they wanted answered. Yeah. And that, that group met three times a week uh, in the evening, so after six o'clock, sometimes on a Sunday. We met on Easter Sunday in 2020 because we had so much work to do to identify what were the research yeah. questions. Well, Who that, were that, I was people? just going to... I mean, you, you, you've just described sort of what you did in a few sentences very quickly, sort of glossing over the fact that, you know, this must have been all encompassing, like massive amount to do with also the thought that, hang on, if this doesn't work, possibly we're all doomed. I mean, this this sounds like, the, you know, this is not an easy walk in the park. This sounds like a major, major deal. And I'm surprised you still got kind of a smile on your face. Well, I have to say you can't do serious business without having a laugh sometimes, but it was very difficult in those challenging times, not least when you tended to get calls on uh, on this, Mike. <laughs> the red phone. The red phone. Oh, my God. It's, it's direct line to Chris Whitty. Um, and uh, the, <laughs> it was a very pressured time. And How often the reason did, we you, met did in, the red line go? Uh, in those days, in that first year of the pandemic, at least once a day, and um, it was a very—it was like being in a war room, frankly. Um, and the reason we met in the evenings was because all of our specialists were involved in frontline care for patients with COVID. Um, so over the course of that first year, um, we identified 100 research studies to uh, to conduct. And they were a variety of things. As I mentioned, we were focused on developing therapeutics, but also um, when they were developed, the uh, delivering the trials that showed that vaccines were effective. Um, we conducted uh, in the first year eight clinical trials of vaccines in 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 the UK, and a variety of different therapeutics uh, protocols. So, and, so this is when someone's you know really ill in intensive care with COVID things yeah. to keep alive because you know this yeah. hadn't occurred before yeah well since you've mentioned intensive care let's work back from there so we had a study that was already going on called remap cap which is uh, led from imperial college um and uh, that was already open actually for for patients in intensive care who had severe pneumonia but we repurposed it for covid um and that uh, identified uh, a, a number of therapeutics that um, uh, improved outcomes very substantially. Um, 
and that included uh, uh, steroids as well as anticoagulants um, and uh, drugs that uh, that uh, repurpose the immune yeah. system. Which we well, repurposing sounds like the way to go because you already know what the side effects are and that these drugs don't just kill people. I suppose exactly, Mike. So that we we focused very much on the art of the possible. Um, so this was not about discovering at, the, at that time. It was not about discovering new agents and then taking them through all the development pathway that that involves. And typically, for if you're developing a new agent from scratch, it typically takes more than seven years to get something licensed. We weren't in that position. We didn't have that luxury. So we needed to see if drugs that we already had in the pharmacy um could be useful for knowing what we do about viral diseases anyway and learning what we did about the importance of of a overactive immune reaction um how could we find drugs that would uh, interfere with either or either or both of those processes right the okay. big the big study that i'm sure um, many of your readers uh, your listeners will have heard about is the recovery study so this has been this was has been described. I was speaking yesterday at um, a meeting for with the Canadian Ministry of Health, and they described um, this study as something that had changed the world. Um, and almost all of the recruitment to this study was in the UK. So recovery was looking at patients who'd been admitted to hospital, so they were seriously ill, but not in intensive care, and that recruited that originally had a recruitment target of of 30,000 individuals. And it was a multi-arm trial, what's called a platform trial. So it started with two different agents, um, two different drugs that we already had in the pharmacy and uh, tried those uh, in parallel, ultimately ended up uh, looking at um, uh, eight different drugs during that first year. And the so it had a target originally of their 30,000 patients in that first year it actually recruited 48,000 people in intense in in hospital so were these so, 48,000 uh, people scattered around hospitals in the UK so this is uh, this is one of the remarkable things about the uh, NIHR clinical research network that study was run in every single um, general hospital in in the country um so uh, it's that so the firepower we were able to bring to bear on this problem was immense. We employ about six and a half thousand staff across England. Um, and that we so we had research ready staff in every hospital. And it was an astonishing effort. And we're very grateful to all the patients who uh, uh, who consented to take part in that study because it did change the world. Right. So the first drug to be shown to be effective was something called dexamethasone. Now, this is a very uh, commonly used steroid. So it's an immune suppressant, essentially. And uh, it changed, it, it, it uh, prevented, uh, it reduced the, the um, uh, likelihood of death by 30%. So one in three people who would have died were saved by this drug. Actually, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you, and I thought that's probably an impossible question, almost embarrassing to ask, but mm. I'll ask it anyway. And you kind of half answered it there because of all this work that you did looking at repurposing drugs and and also the vaccines, which I'll ask you about in a moment. You know, is, yeah. is there an estimate of just how many lives were saved through all this? 
Well, it's not my estimate, but it is by the um, the world's statisticians um, uh, and the, the World Health Organization, the WHO, has estimated it, that in that first year of the pandemic, that discovery, that finding, uh, which Sir Chris Whitty um, issued guidance the day after the result was announced, that um, this should become routine practice for patients who've been admitted with, with COVID-19. It saved, in that first year alone, 22,000 lives in, in the UK and a million worldwide. And that was just right. in the... So it, it was remarkable. And the cost of a course of dexamethasone, five pounds. Money well spent. I would say it's uh, for those people who um, were able to leave hospital. And um, that was a, well, it was close on a, a miracle to get that discovery so early in the yeah. pandemic. So obviously there were a lot of people involved in doing this, but yes. pretty much you were at the rudder. You were at the helm kind of sorting this out. Is that, that's, that's fair to say, isn't it? Well, I chaired the group, um, but I was not alone. You're quite right. Um, we have, you know, we have around 5,000 um, uh, clinical specialists across the country, sorry, about 500 clinical specialists across the country that we can call on for help in um, giving advice, um, expert advice. Yeah. And this was a collective effort with the, um, with the Med Medical Research Council, the NIHR, uh, the Wellcome Trust, uh, and uh, and other funders, as well as all our colleagues across the NHS and in social care. Um, right. So lots of people were involved, but um, Nick, you were the guy with the red phone. And actually, I just want to say this because I know you're you're not going to. You you were awarded a CBE for this, weren't you? I was. Um, I was very privileged and honoured to receive it on behalf of my colleagues. But yes, I was. Yeah. Well, con congratulations on that. I think we can only say kind of. Well, well deserves a kind of miraculous um, work. So, moving on, you you mentioned uh, some of the, the drugs that you've, you've repurposed. This this one in particular. Out of all these trials you did, you were also working on trials for for vaccines as well. Is that that's correct, sir? That's right. Yeah. So as well as the so the the one we started first was for the AstraZeneca um, agents that were developed by. Uh, the the world experts at the University of Oxford, um, and we were able to roll those out very quickly, um, and using innovative approaches. So we opened vaccine hubs in uh, sports halls, in libraries, in hospitals, in GP practices, uh, and we were able to get those over the line very quickly indeed. And um, as, as well as the other agents, um, the from Moderna and others that people will be receiving now, um, many of the recruits were in this country, but obviously yeah. there was a more worldwide effort for those ones. You managed to do these trials incredibly quickly. Was that just because of the kind of sense of urgency and, you know, the, the, the red phone or was anything else different? You know, because, you know, Joe Public, you know, me, I hear of trials. You know, in fact, you said it takes seven years for something to kind of come to fruition. And it all happened in a matter of kind of weeks almost or, or maybe maybe months. Was anything different or was it just a sense of urgency? We were absolutely laser focused on these studies so that we had to close down almost all other clinical research while this was going on. For that first year until we're out of the emergency phase um 
So we are very lucky uh, in this country to have a national health service. I know it's got its problems, um, uh, which we're experiencing at the moment. However, the fact that we can uh, pivot the whole organization to undertake what is needed to um, to to overcome this uh, this emergency was something that we're very proud of. And actually, the British public are very open to research, uh, clinical research. And we all remember, you know, watching the evening briefings uh, from the from Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance and um, and the Prime Minister. Uh, uh, and when the results were result uh, were announced about recovery and and some of the other studies too, that was a really motivating experience for all of us. And I think people were just absolutely um, up for anything that would uh, enable us to uh, to overcome the the horror of that first year of the pandemic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, in in routine practice, you know, we uh, every year we recruit something approaching a million people to clinical research studies uh, in, in the UK, which is remarkable. Um, so people are open to um, doing things that might not benefit themselves individually, but for the good of others. And actually in that first year, those 100 studies that we, we focused on, they recruited over a million people, over a million people right. in that first year. So that, that and all those people were in the UK. Yes. Okay, the great British public. So that's like one in seventy people. Yes. Volunteered for, I was going to say to be experimented on. That's not quite the right phrase to take part in a trial. That's right. This so this is not being experimented on. We wouldn't want you to think that this is. No. Um, we we had nothing at the start of the pandemic. We knew nothing, and this was to find things that, as you mentioned, were known safe agents for the drugs um, and well-tested technology for the vaccines. So the, these these were things that some people were on anyway, not the vaccines, but some of these drugs. So we knew them really well. And um, that was, you know, that was that reassurance that we could give people that was really important part of this process. Yeah, certainly. No. Anyway, the great British public, let let Let's move on on a little bit and ask you some more uh, questions, really more about um, some some of the vaccines, because essentially we've, we've been pretty used to to vaccines working for us, you know, with, with polio and you know there are many many success stories, and um, but with with COVID, um, you know, you can have the vaccine. I'm you know I'm I'm fully jabbed up. No, actually, I have had COVID a couple of times. Uh, and so is my wife. And recently she had COVID again. So it, it, I suppose the question is, are we dealing with something different? You know, is is uh, is COVID uh, a harder virus to deal with or, you know, it just seems slightly different? Yes. So it, as you mentioned, we've, you know, we've we've eradicated smallpox um, uh, many years ago. Um, uh, but COVID it comes from a class of viruses which are, are mutate. They change their the, their surface um, membrane very quickly, um, and that makes it a moving target essentially. So the virus that we experienced uh, in the first wave is not the one that is in circulation now, and I think people know that. And that's why the the current um, vaccine rollout is with 
with um, uh, altered versions of the original vaccines to take account of the fact that the virus has moved on. Um, and no vaccine for, for uh, most viruses is completely protective. And while um, most of us will generate, um, will mount an antibody response to the vaccine, that is, is, will also be uh, an antibody response against the virus, it's not rock solid. And um, we should remember, and it's, uh, it, it needs boosting, which is why after you've had your first dose, you then have a booster and then another booster. And now obviously um, many people are, are receiving a further booster with the, with the altered um, um, vaccine to take account, take account of the new strain. Right. But we should remember that there's about a million people in this country who um, are immunosuppressed for a variety of reasons, um, uh, either because they're on cancer treatments or they've had a kidney transplant or they just naturally have a, a, a weak immune response. And that's a, a, a real problem because those people are, are not capable of mounting an antibody response in the same way that most people can. And that that is still an issue. And that's why some people are still uh, shielding um, uh, and just avoiding uh, public contact because they don't have that protection. I mean, um, the are years on. So what, what, what can they do? They can't do much more than shield at the presently. Or have you got something up your sleeve to help them as well? Well, um, there are there are ways. So um, one of the approaches that's been used um, has been to use uh, convalescent um, uh, serum. So taking blood from people who've mounted a really good immune response to the virus um, and um, and uh, purifying the antibodies from that and then giving that to patients um, in order to uh, give them a, uh, um, an exogenous, um, so for, uh, uh, an artificial uh, boost with okay. with, viral, with antibodies from somebody else and also um we're running trials for preventive or, or protective uh drugs as well so antivirals that right. um have been identified okay. um so but it's a challenge and as you as you see you know it hasn't gone away it's just it's just shifted um sure. well the, the the not going away is something that i'm keen to ask you a little bit as well so this sort of i this well two things really there's there's long covid but also people that have covid badly uh i've, I've spoken to friends and indeed my my wife when she had um covid the the, the the last time uh the thing that really worries people or seems to worry them is this brain fog you know because yeah. actually you can understand if you've got a fever or you feel a bit achy but when you have this real brain fog, you start thinking, you know, what's causing this and will it ever go? You know, am I going to be like stuck with this, forgetting things forever? Yeah. So does, is, is there any, um, does anyone know why this sort of brain fog occurs? Because it seems to be a symptom that really worries a lot of people. Yes, um, I chaired the um, national expert group on long COVID um, which we started in in uh, just in at Christmas time in 2020. Um, I had which a suspicion I'd be talking to the right guy actually, Nick. <laughs> so it became evident that um, yeah, as you say, the symptoms were not going away, and long COVID mm -hmm. essentially is described as 
um, or defined as those who still have persistent symptoms more than 12 weeks, more than three months after their, their initial infection. And that's a substantial proportion of people, actually. So it's, it's at least 10% of people, um, particularly uh, those who are, um, who are female, um, and those who are uh, middle-aged and also have have um, other uh, other conditions. And the brain fog, we don't fully know why that is. Um, there are various uh, there are various things that have been investigated and found to be there. So um, some of it uh, is about the inflammation that occurs uh, generally as a result of COVID. And we know that um, that uh, uh, the virus does infect um, nerve cells, uh, which is probably why loss of taste and loss of smell was one of the early identified symptoms. Mm-hmm. We also know that um, that the the virus causes uh, inflammation of the lining of very small blood vessels called capillaries, um, and that uh, occurs appears to occur also in the brain. We also know that um, that, uh, that some people have a, a reservoir, uh, uh, so the virus just hides uh, in the crannies in the body, and so can have reemerge in waves um, after the initial infection. We also know that um, in some people that uh, uh, other viruses that we know are latent, so sort of lying dormant in our bodies after after infection, so things like Epstein-Barr virus, which causes glandular fever when you first get it, but can cause symptoms when, when it reemerges. We know that e, that virus, EBV, um, can reemerge more frequently. Uh, shingles is another one, isn't it? People might have heard of that a bit more. Absolutely, absolutely. And another virus commonly um, appears to reemerge, something called human herpes virus 6, which is a childhood infection, which causes diarrhea and uh, fever, and in some cases, a a skin rash in in children under the age of three. Um, That one also um, can remain dormant and and appears to reemerge after you've had had COVID uh, in the long COVID phase. We also know that um, that we get so we talked about antibodies being a good thing in terms of your reaction to a vaccine and protection against a second infection, but uh, we also now know that a range of what are called autoantibodies, so antibodies against components of your normal self, are also um, more frequent in in patients who've got long COVID symptoms. And um, so it's at the moment, we don't have a fully formed picture, Mike, but um, there, it's a it's a, a, multiple components to what's going on here. Um, right. uh, and I have to say, when I got COVID, um, I had um, I, I, I lost the ability to remember the names of things. Um, so I didn't know. I couldn't remember what a fridge was called. Um, and I, I couldn't mean, this remember. stuff is scary, isn't it? I mean, you know. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, so, so brain fog is very common, but also um, shortness of breath uh, can be a symptom that lasts a long time. Right. Uh, palpitations, so heart heart flutter, um, headache. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Actually, you know, some well, studies. Well, have... an- another one that I'd, I'd I'd like to mention though is because it does seem to be again really difficult to carry on any sort of normal life, and that's the fatigue. And when yeah. I've spoken to people, 
getting across what they mean by fatigue is, is really difficult, you know, because we've all felt a bit tired. In fact, we felt really tired at times. But I think this fatigue yeah. is just like another step up. It's, any thoughts, or, you know, do we, do we know, do you know why that happens and if anything can be done about it? Well, um, it's it definitely is part of the syndrome of, of long COVID. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, again, it's a sort of multifactorial um, issue in that um, we know that uh, the COVID virus can cause damage to the lungs. Um, and so when people have looked at the transfer of oxygen, for instance, uh, in the lung, that is, is frequently reduced in patients who've got severe symptoms of long COVID. Um, many people experience muscle aches and um, probably because there's damage to the muscle as well. Um, and uh, it's important actually to listen to your body um, experiencing that fatigue. Pushing too hard um, uh, with exercise, many people just want to get back to normal and um, you know, um, being fit and healthy before you had COVID is no guarantee that you, you can immediately become fit and healthy after you've had COVID. So um, pacing yourself both, both uh, uh, physically, but also cognitively too. So uh, the brain fog you mentioned, um, trying to think too much um, and, and uh, to do too much is also appears to be uh, not the best thing to do to actually, so pacing is an important part of what we've learned about right. um, managing long COVID in, in the very substantial number of people who have had it, or in some cases, still have it. So certainly, well, in my, my experience, when my wife had it, uh, this wasn't long COVID, but it certainly went on for a couple of weeks, I'd, I'd see her and I'd say, you know, you're right. And she would say, I haven't even got the energy to be bored. <laughs> yeah yeah that, that, i've heard that many times from well not those exact words but, but something like that uh from the patient groups who uh uh represent the interests of individuals with with long covid right so well i suppose if if people do have long covid feel like they have long covid is, is there any have you got any advice in in, in the short term well, as I mentioned, you know, the, the pacing approach right, to being able yeah. to get back to normal is really important. There is a big study going on at the moment um, of of uh, of some drugs uh, that we think might be helpful. So it's called the Stimulate ICP study. If people look that up, there's an opportunity to volunteer for it. All it's right. comparing three different classes of drug. Um, one is an anti-inflammatory uh, agent. Um, another is uh, a, a, an agent that uh, reduces blood clotting. Um, so it's called an, it's an antiplatelet agent. Um, uh, and the third is uh, an antihistamine. Now you might say, well, what's, what a histamine's got to do with anything? Well, uh, some of the immunological studies have shown that a, a class of, of immune cell called mast cells which um, which release histamine in in response to um, inflammation are disordered in patients with long COVID, um, and there have been anecdotal reports that taking antihistamines makes people feel a bit better when they've got long COVID. But at the moment, that's just anecdote, just word of mouth, and yeah. it's really important that we have 
rigorous uh, clinical trial um, uh, evidence before that becomes standard of practice. But um, that is ongoing. It hasn't completed yet. It's got a way to go. But um, uh, that's that's running in a, a number of centres across across the country. Okay. So there's so there's research still going on for for long COVID and for treatment of COVID in the short term and presumably for for vaccines because of as you mentioned this thing changes so you have to keep up with it. But yeah, maybe a good place to to just to finish would be what advice. Um, what we can all, what can we all do to help? You know, because COVID is still with us. So what, you know, what should I do? What can we all do to just try and get on board and keep it to a, a minimum? Well, first and foremost, when you get the call, get the vaccine. Right. Um, and just because you've had a vaccine before, if you're called up for a booster, get the booster. Um, and uh, all of the ones that are available, there are three, I think, currently in in, uh, in circulation. Uh, that's the key to it. Um, I think also just be aware the virus has not gone away. It has not gone away. So be careful. Um, be careful around the vulnerable, um, because you, you will remember that. While many people have had um, symptomatic infections and they know when they've got COVID, um, many pe people don't get any symptoms. So just because somebody's not coughing and sneezing and, and uh, confined to bed doesn't mean that they couldn't have COVID. Mm. So just be sensible. And if you have got symptoms and you are coughing and sneezing, wear a mask. Right. OK, well, that, that sounds like a very good place to, to finish you know two things that we can all do after you've described some of the many things that you personally and also uh, many others have done to essentially uh, help us all so, so so nick thank you very much indeed for chatting for giving us a, a snapshot and, a, and an insight into all that many thanks my pleasure a big thank you to my guest this week, Professor Nick Lemoyne, CBE, talking about the medical research and trials done during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Also, a big thank you to you for listening and have a healthy week until next week. Thanks for listening to the Relax Back UK show. Join me, Mike Dilk, again next week for more fascinating interviews and chat. If you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe, like and share it with your family and friends. And have a healthy week. Until next week.